It is with great excitement that in 2021, we are blessed to have two new sponsors for the CT Startup Podcast. One of those sponsors is CT Next, an organization each one of our hosts, as well as many of our guests and listeners have had the opportunity and pleasure of interacting with. I'm going to let Glendalyn Thames, Deputy Commissioner of the DCD and Founding Executive Director of CT Next, explain what CT Next does for early stage businesses here in Connecticut. So what is CT Next? Our, our mission um, fundamentally is really to equip early stage companies and entrepreneurs with resources, guidance, um, networks to accelerate their, their growth um, and, and really creating an environment where our entrepreneurs can really start their business, grow their business and thrive in Connecticut and positioning Connecticut as the most desirable location in the country for an innovative company to build and grow and create jobs. And we do this, uh, you know, a few different ways, right? Um, one by, you know, really cultivating a network of public-private partnerships and really acting as a catalyst um, that supports entrepreneurs from ideation and growth to exits. Um, but then also, you know, providing direct funding to companies as well. So we have many programs um, that are non-dilutive capital to help accelerate kind of the early stages of growth of a company. Um, and then, you know, we, we offer uh, other programming relative to, you know, again, building that, that, in, that community infrastructure across our state. So if you think about, you know, incubators, accelerators, co-working spaces where that, that dynamic knowledge sharing is happening and where kind of innovation actually starts and, and occurs. For more information, please visit www.ctnext.com. This is CT Startup, your source for information on entrepreneurs, investors, and resources in the Connecticut startup ecosystem. From university campuses to industrial labs, from Stanford to Hartford, and from Danbury to Norwich, if it's happening out there in Connecticut, you'll find it in here. Welcome to CT Startup. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the CT Startup Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Eric Francis. And today I am going to be talking with somebody uh, that is bringing, bringing something to market that, uh, you know, for some, uh, it's not something that you like to talk about and some might not be seeing kind of this industry coming up, but for others, it's kind of like a, a welcome, uh, welcome addition to uh, their state's economy and hopefully maybe in Connecticut soon enough. And so uh, I have with me Mike Kennedy, who is co-founder and head of product and uh, strategy at Green Check Verified. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing well, Eric. Thanks so much for having me. So the industry that that I kind of alluded to is the cannabis industry. All right. So it's one of those ones where uh, I know I've had many conversations throughout. Uh, and I'm going to date myself. So I'm 32. Right. So so that's uh, I want to just kind of put, put my age out there. I've talked to people over the past, say, 10 years uh, and, and, you know, it's on the horizon. It's going to come, you know, in high school years is like in my lifetime, it will get legalized. Right. So we are on the cusp of that. And you are uh, tackling a, a big thing uh, when it comes to this industry and kind of the the, uh, the legalization of it. So, can you tell us a little bit about Green Check Verified and uh, you know the problems that you are solving? Yeah, absolutely. So, Green Check Verified offers uh, financial products and services for the legal cannabis industry. 
we connect uh, state legal cannabis businesses with banks and credit unions that want to serve them and offer a compliance and reporting platform that streamlines some of the high-risk protocols that banks have to uh, put these customers through. And that way we can make it uh, more accessible. So getting more financial institutions off the sidelines, given that it is still federally illegal, um, but also uh, less arduous for the businesses. They don't have to jump through as many hoops and therefore they can focus on you know, growing their, their day-to-day operations and not you know, filing a bunch of paperwork and responding to seemingly endless requests from their bank. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, for those people that don't really realize this, um, marijuana, even the legal ca- uh, business is basically cash, right? For the, for, for the reason that it's federally legal and most banks won't touch it because of that fact, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And it, it's certainly, um, you know, a lot, a lot of folks from the outside will view that as a temporary blocker, but the reality is my background is in financial services. I come from a, a, the banking world and there are tons of fully legalized industries that remain off limits to banks, you know, check cashing establishments, um, some used car dealerships, even pawn shops or, you know, single proprietor businesses that pose a higher likelihood for money laundering. Some banks will choose not to serve at all. So it's not just the federal illegality, though that's certainly the biggest blocker here. Uh, you know, banks themselves are regulated at the national level. They have, um, you know, federal deposit insurance, and they have partnerships and other uh, relationships that they consider to be at risk should they choose to work with the cannabis industry, even in states in which it's legal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's uh, it's interesting that you bring up the check cashing and the other businesses because, like, I, I guess I wouldn't have thought of that, right? Because those aren't illegal; those are, you know, they're, they're uh, you can do them. But I guess the money money laundering thing—that's a big issue, right? Uh, unless you're the the big big guys, right? The big banks that you know just get fined and, and move on with it. But another 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 subject. So uh, so I guess you, you come from the banking industry. So how did you get 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 into this? Like uh, I. Uh, when you mentioned before is that you uh you're about four years old right is that what you said right right about three four years old the company is yeah uh, so we we launched at the end of 2017 um but in reality it, you know it took took 18 20 months for us to build the company you know hire the initial team build the products get a beta to market um so when i think about green check um certainly in terms of full product launch we're closer to two years old um, and we've, we've learned a whole lot in that time frame. But uh, to answer your question, this came about because we identified that you have these two highly regulated industries that want to be able to work together but don't know how. On the one hand, you've got you know, cannabis businesses that are growing 30% compound annual growth, uh, largely cash-based. It's, it's a security and safety risk, keeping that cash on hand. There are scores of robberies and unfortunately even violence associated with you know, uh, bad actors knowing that there's cash on site and it's an inefficient way to grow an emerging market, right? Imagine running a multi-million dollar business exclusively in cash. It's, it's crazy, some of the stories that you hear. But on the other end of this equation, you have the financial institutions, specifically community banks and credit unions. So we're not talking about, you know, the Bank of Americas and the Wells Fargo's. We're talking about the small, you know, Bank of New Havens with a handful of branches. These financial institutions are facing very competitive market forces. They're going under to either outright failure or mergers and acquisitions at a rate of about 200 per year. And so in the U.S., the number of financial institutions in total is under 10,000 today. 
that number is going to continue to, to decline unless these smaller banks that, by the way, disproportionately make up small business loans and first-time home mortgages. They, they quite literally prop up Main Street economies. But if they can't compete, then they're going to continue to succumb to you know, the large banks taking market share, fintechs taking market share, um, and, and regulatory capture, frankly. The changing regulatory landscape puts uh, additional burden on these smaller banks to compete. And so when you think about this Venn diagram of financial institutions and cannabis businesses, what you have is you know, both relatively small businesses, both dealing with a highly turbulent regulatory landscape. But the, the really neat overlap is that the industry is growing, but isn't large enough to attract the attention of these larger banks. Because for Bank of America, you know, a $3 trillion bank to put that asset at risk to capture a you know twenty five to thirty billion dollar market, the risk you know just isn't worth the reward. Whereas a smaller you know one to two billion dollar bank, certainly that risk justifies the reward. So we decided after working, I personally working with hundreds of financial institutions across the country who are you know trying their best to remain competitive, we decided that these businesses in their community were part and parcel with what the banks and these credit unions charter actually is. It's to serve individuals and businesses on Main Street. So why not devise a strategy to connect the dots and help everyone feel comfortable and make sure this is a safe and equitable access to financial services? I see that that is very interesting, right? Because you would have assumed that big business is going to get into it, right? Like, especially right when it gets legalized and, you know, like there's talk of it becoming federally legal, which I don't know if that, that's necessarily the case just yet. Um, but it's, it's very interesting that you're connecting the dots right between those two kind of struggling businesses. And, and you're right. Some of those local bankers, um, maybe know those local business owners, right. They're, they're kind of attached to them. I mean, and I mean, while there are big brands getting into the cannabis business, it is primarily smaller businesses, right? They're not these, I mean, you hear about the, the, um, was it the Coronas of the world, right? I think they're into it and, you know, some of these bigger brands, but Again, there's so much, uh, you know, the cannabis market is is really, really at its infancy, right? Like it's not, it has, it's really not even still socially acceptable in many cases. So, very grassroots, you know, very community driven. Um, the the ethos is not that which would align with big banks, right? It's very much, you know, by the people for the people, and that's what these community banks are are um, preaching as well. So it really is a, a match culturally, and then from a from a business need perspective, you know, banks are facing um, decreased net interest margins. So the, the Fed rate is you know, near zero, um, loan demand is in the can. And so they're, the swing, what they make on interest is lower than it's ever been. Um, coincidentally, before COVID, so COVID has sort of impacted this, this problem, but they were also seeing uh, increases in their cost of funds. So the amount of money it took them to acquire Eric as a customer, for example, to then deposit Eric's paycheck, which they could lend out to me, was continuing to increase. So they needed lower cost of funds without having to go out and borrow from the, the wholesale uh, shops that they have access to and new fee revenue or non-interest revenue that they could use to supplement the shrinking interest margins. The businesses that, that we serve were tired of you know, some of these um, early mover banks that were charging just hand over fist just thousands and thousands of dollars just to park your money in the bank. We said, well, there is a cost because there is additional monitoring and oversight. But if you were to 
deploy technology as opposed to headcount, you could reduce those costs to the banks and therefore pass those savings off to the cannabis industry in the form of lower fees. So we, we see it as a win-win. Yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to like the, so let's, let's kind of, you, you talk about the banks and the types of banks that you're kind of going after. What type of marijuana business are you going after? Is it just the dispensary or is it the grower too? Is it like who, who, who can actually kind of use this? So any plant touching business. Okay. So the, the cannabis industry is generally thought of as, you know, the, the licensed entities. So you've got the dispensaries, growers, manufacturers, producers, depending on the state, you've got multiple people that touch the product before it gets sold to the customer or patient any of those businesses. Uh, what we've also done is we've created an ecosystem of what are called cannabis related businesses or other entities that derive a portion of their revenue from serving the cannabis market, but don't themselves sell marijuana. So think you know, accountants, attorneys, um, even electricians and, and other trades that are kicked out from their bank because the bank sees that they're cashing a check with the dispensary's name on it uh, and they've taken a zero tolerance approach. So we, we've cultivated this ecosystem of both the plant touching businesses and their service providers to be able to create a more rich uh, environment where all of those stakeholders can interact. Mm -hmm. And I've heard so many, just like you kind of mentioned the stories of you hear about the stick up men and the fact that special forces guys are, you know, carrying around millions of dollars, right. And, and doing these, uh, 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 doing these drops. Um, you also hear about the, the, it's like, the way a lot of these businesses sometimes structure themselves just so they can pay their vendors and pay their landlord and pay this person. Right. It, it, it is kind of a, a kind of crazy just how much people have kind of uh, had to, uh, you know, create a certain kind of uh, uh, protocol just to, just to get their money in the bank or just so they yeah. don't get kicked out. Right. Cause if you're an electrician, I mean, a grow op, I've known, I've known a few electricians that have done them in Connecticut. They're good. It's good money. It's good, yeah. big, huge jobs. Right. But again, you, you, you can't risk all your other business just for that one gig, right? So, um, so, so that's, uh, that's interesting. And so have you seen, um, when it comes to the, the state and the, the uh, like medical versus legal, right? Is there a difference in, in how the banks are treating like medical and legal? Um, or like, or sorry, recreation, sorry, recreation yeah, and medical yeah, the, yeah. The terms. So the, the, the industry term is adult use. Okay. That's okay. the... Yep. That, that's what we use. Um, uh, and, and I'm just, I'm mostly teasing. It's, you can call it whatever you want. The reality is our software makes it so you don't have to care about that delineation, but there is a, a difference in risk, but it's not that substantial. You know, the, the difference is you have a larger total available market because any person of age can purchase marijuana as opposed to just a medical patient. But the, the rigorous licensing requirements, the regulatory oversight, I mean, all, all of those boundaries and, and limitations are still in place. And you could argue that it's even more so in a recreational market because now you've got many more eyes on the industry as opposed to the medical market. For example, here in Connecticut, medical market is, is regulated under the Department of Consumer Protection. It just barely crosses into you know, the, the pharmaceutical industry here in the state. There are four growers, uh, 18 dispensaries, and it derives a significant amount of revenue for the state, but it doesn't really generate all of that attention, that much attention. There are only, I think last time I checked, 30, 35,000 patients registered in the state. So it's a small market. But if you look at the Connecticut cannabis program and the Colorado cannabis program, the regulations are still very similar. It's just the scale 
that changes. So from a, a, a banking and, and risk perspective, it's really not all that different, but from an opportunity perspective, it certainly gets a lot larger if you're talking about uh, adult use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And adult use is like one of those things where uh, the, the, just like it happens with, with legal markets is that the black market sometimes kind of is, is benefits from that because there's so much more. And uh, knowing that, uh, I, you know, talking to uh, growers that are in Maine and, and, and other places, it's incredible how much the prices have dropped. And it re- is one of those things and they have competition. It is one of those things. So once it becomes legal, like, again, I think Ned Lamont's talked about it, you know, New York just did it right. So and it's one of those things I feel like in the Northeast, once you know, Connecticut can't be sandwiched between New York and Massachusetts and not and not do it. Um, and so uh, I think, it, you know, when I'm talking about the revenue that I'll generate, probably uh, I'm going to assume it's going to generate a lot more revenue, you know, once it uh, once it becomes legal. So, yeah, but it's funny you bring up the black market. So that's that's the balance, right, is if if the state looks at the cannabis industry as a way to generate revenue, which it should. Right. The tax revenues aren't nothing, but you run the risk of creating a tax structure that um, really catalyzes the black market because you have customers or more importantly, medical patients, which most states, it isn't taxed, but people who are using marijuana for medical purposes, it's not covered by insurance. This is all out of pocket. Mm-hmm. So if the state creates you know, a regime that offers too high of a surplus, too high of a, um, you know, a, a tax or other fees, then it is going to force patients to seek their product from the black market. So it's interesting to watch sort of the ebb and flow. You have some states that go very tax heavy and then others that um, you know, offer a, a much lower tax, but maybe allow the municipalities, the local level to um, take some discretion of their own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to shift uh, gears a, a little bit and kind of uh, get back a little bit of origin. So you, are you a Connecticut native native? Are you a born and raised? I am or? born and raised yeah, in Western Connecticut. Very good. Very good. So when it comes to, when it comes to, uh, you know, you living in Connecticut and, and everything is that, did you always see Connecticut as like a business friendly state, like where you wanted to start a business at and, and kind of always, uh, always thought about starting a business or was this more kind of the right time, the right moment, you kind of uh, hit something and, and then you're like, wow, Connecticut has a great ecosystem that I can actually build this, you know, this kind of company. I mean, you know, I was just some dumb entrepreneur who you know, <laughs> pro- probably didn't have much of a say in it. Um, so I, I can't say I intentionally stayed in Connecticut to build a business, but I can tell you that I've been just continuously overwhelmed with support, um, the ecosystem, particularly here in New Haven. Um, you know, it, I think it's a great sort of underdog story, you know, to be a venture backed startup in Connecticut, not in California or New York or Boston, gives us a little bit of a sort of unassuming uh, mentality where, you know, we know that we have to fight a little bit harder for attention from investors and, and certainly on the partnership front. You know, it's a lot easier for us to say we're, you know, New York based than Connecticut based. But when it comes to building a team, um, to getting access to, you know, infrastructure. We were incubated in the Science Park Incubator. And, you know, without that program, I wouldn't have been able to quit my day job. We wouldn't have been able to build a beta. We wouldn't have, been, we wouldn't have a company, you know? Um, so I think that the, the incentives that the state has put forth are very strong. And, you know, even now in a, a fully decentralized capacity, we have absolutely no intention of moving our headquarters even though you know my co-founder, our CEO, has relocated permanently to Florida, the majority of our team is no longer in Connecticut. Um, 
that that's not true. We're still majority Connecticut, but we're a Connecticut based company. <laughs> you're like you're like you're like 49, 59, 40, 51, 49 percent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and it's you know we have roots here, and um, we have a little bit of a an even deeper connection to the state level. Um, another member of the founding team, John Gadea, was the former director of consumer protection. He actually wrote the medical marijuana program here in our state. So that was really our first sort of entry point. You know, me coming from financial services, I didn't know anything about cannabis. And so I was brought up on the Connecticut Cannabis Program, which to date is one of the strongest medical programs in the country. Uh, John is it's constantly called upon to do you know, public speaking and, and audit other states programs. And I think that's indicative of you know, what, what Hartford is bringing to the table is, you know, it's not just looking at the cannabis industry as the wild, wild west, it's bringing structure and rigor. Uh, and, you know, I think they do that uh, in similar capacities with the startup community as well. It's not just, hey, let's infuse some capital, right? It's let's create structure and, and form and then what will emerge are successful companies. And it's really exciting to see those around. Mm-hmm. So uh, talking about kind of taking the leap from your, from your day job, what was kind of, what were the steps to that was, did you, did you have this idea? Did you meet John? Did you meet kind of your, your co- other co-founder? I mean, like how, what, what was the process of you actually uh, leaving the day job? Because for many leaving the day job is like this the scariest proposition, right? You know, <laughs> and, and you, and you were working at continuity, uh, you know, with my, uh, Mike uh, Nicastro, which I know mm-hmm. from CCSU. So it's like, and, and I know like 2020 has been in, very interesting for them. Right. You know, and so it's like financial institutions, uh, uh, all around. So like, what were, what was the, uh, the impetus to, uh, to, uh, step away? So I am incredibly lucky to have, um, my co-founder, Kevin Hart, not the comedian. Uh, <laughs> he is about 30 years, my senior. So he was actually my college roommate's father. So we've known each other for, you know, 15, 16 years now. And, his experience is vast. He's, he's taken companies public. He's you know exited multiple companies. And most recently, he did a stint with a private equity firm going in and fixing broken venture-backed companies. So um, I, I would say it was entirely a leap of faith, but that wouldn't be true. It was you know knowing that I'm taking a leap of faith, I'm taking a risk, but I'm doing it with um, somebody who has the experience and track record that I know I can learn from. Not to say that I wasn't doing that at continuity, I certainly was, but the opportunity to build a product, to build a company from scratch, along with you know gaining guidance and having the support and, and frankly, the um, lack of or reduction in risk by knowing that we're building with somebody who's built before, uh, I think was enough of a um, incentive for me to you know call it quits and, and start something new. Um, we still have a great relationship with continuity and you know, we, we talked to those guys quite a bit. And uh, the interesting thing is that it, it's been, it's been an opportunity for me to grow personally um, far more than I anticipated. You know, I thought I was going to come in and have sort of a, a, a track that I would run and, and that would be sort of my role as co-founder. And it, it's certainly taken, you know, a much wider uh, perspective. And so I feel that even, even if I didn't, you know, even if I wasn't a co-owner of the company, it, getting this experience in and of itself is still massively beneficial and, you know, something that I wish everybody is lucky enough to experience at some point in their career. 
Yep. So you, I bet you, uh, you thought you were only going to wear like three or four hats and probably you're wearing like 20 hats, maybe kind of, I'm I'm making the hats, man. (laughs) Yeah. You're making the hats. Exactly. Right. Um, so that's, that's interesting that, uh, you know, uh, sometimes you meet somebody and you don't know how it's going to kind of, uh, uh, play out down the road, uh, in terms of, um, you know, kind of your experiences and how you overlap, because I bet, again, you, you never thought you'd be starting a business with your, your, uh, old roommate's father. Um, so I guess when it comes to that, is that, did you, did you kind of with him, I assume, start building a team around like the weaknesses that you guys both share. Right. Cause I mean, he, he obviously seems to be the executive side, being able to scale and, and bring a, you know, a team together. So was that kind of your thinking around kind of partnering with him too, is that you guys kind of, again, one had strengths here and one had strengths here. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, it's not only strengths, but also network, you know, our networks had virtually no overlap which was massively beneficial because we could each go fish in separate ponds and bring together, you know, these, these leaders to help, you know, stand up our compliance program. Um, you know, our engineering team, neither of us, I mean, Kevin wrote Cobalt software in the seventies, but neither of us are, are, rel- are fairly technical. Um, so being able to, to go out and, and get these experts in their respective domains without having to hire, you know, a headhunter or, or work with a firm, you know, we were able to do that from our network and that was hugely beneficial at the early days. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to building a team, did you find, uh, have you, did, were you able to find a lot of people in Connecticut where there's other people? Cause I saw on your, on your board, you have some people from uh, around the state and everything is that. So, I mean, how, how was it when uh, finding the other people uh, in the talent? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. You say you know, cannabis and banking in the same sentence and, and you know, people light up. Um, but you know, when early recruiting in 2017, it's only been a couple of years, but the, the, the Overton window has shifted so much. I mean, there were, there was a period of time where we weren't, you know, we were saying high risk banking, right? We weren't like openly identifying as a cannabis banking company because we wanted to make sure that whoever the audience was would take us seriously and understand that we're, you know, a, a competent professional shop. We're not, you know going out and, and living any of the, um, you know, the tropes or any of the negative stereotypes, but it became pretty clear probably around a year, year and a half in that in reality, we are a mission driven company. And that mission is to empower, you know, industry growth by connecting the cannabis uh, businesses with financial services they need and, and orientation towards mission attracts way more candidates than buzzwords or, you know, whatever is trending on Hacker News. So we found that by, um, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid and, and going headfirst into, you know, financial services for the cannabis industry, we were able to get that message out and that made recruiting a whole lot easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, the, you, you meet some of these people and they're, they're owners of a cannabis business and you're just like, woof, you know, you're, you're, you're living the lifestyle for sure, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're definitely living it. And, uh, and that's, the, that's the nature of it. I mean, over the past few years, like I mentioned before, is that, you know, uh, people, people five, you know, of just a year ago would probably say would never go federally legal. Right. And it's, and it's not saying that it is right now, but it's like every year it's getting closer and closer. So I guess here's kind of another kind of little detour is that growing up, what was your, like, you know, the drug culture, cannabis, like when you told your, your parents or your family or friends that you were going to go do this, but like, are you crazy? Or was this like, oh yeah, Mike, this is, this is right down his alley. No, I was, um, I mean, I've always been sort of counterculture, um, but definitely not, 
I would. I don't think anybody would have pegged me for somebody who'd be working in the cannabis industry. Let's put it that way. Um, I think the the opportunity is clear enough, and the need, right? So I, I, I don't think anybody had a hard time, you know, saying, "Oh, yeah, yeah that makes sense." As soon as I explained it to them, um, but yeah, you know, th- think about the the. Uh, the stereotypes for both sides. You've got like the, the fat cat banker, top hat monocle. And then you've got what I think you were alluding to, which is, you know, the, the, the tie dye hippie stoner type. Um, those are the markets that we serve, right? And we're building product for those two user types. And so absent any of your political or, you know, ethical feelings about the, the subject matter, the, the business quandary of how do you create a solution that attracts both of those people from completely different walks of life. I mean, that that's enough to pique your interest for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess is that, so has your, uh, um, your feelings on cannabis that had the, have they changed because of this? Uh, is it something that kind of, uh, you know, uh, that you were morally okay with beforehand, or was this again, more of the business opportunity that you're just like, there's it's just too big not to solve. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I certainly was never opposed to it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a user. I don't, um, I, I don't hold any ill will. Um, what's interesting is the majority of our early uh, partnerships with banks and credit unions were kicked off by the fact that a board member or an executive or some decision maker was either personally or, you know, once or twice removed affected by uh, the medical benefits of cannabis. So um, being now a member of this ecosystem, I've been exposed to much more research and um, you know, publications that sort of bring some of the medical efficacy to the forefront, whereas you don't hear about this a whole lot because there aren't a lot of people doing national research because again, it's federally illegal. So no, no very few universities are authorized to you know, study the, the medical benefits. Um, you know, pharmaceutical companies obviously aren't, aren't doing any testing themselves. But when you start to hear about particularly things that are happening outside of the U.S., where there are, you know, more options for, you know, legitimate large-scale medical research, you begin to see that, hey, it's, you know, yes, there's a, a recreational side of it, right? And it's, you know, the tobacco and alcohol industry and, you know, a vice is a vice. I mean, that that's fantastic. But there's also a huge medical component that, you know, the recreational side, that, that cat's going to come out of the bag when it gets federally legalized, but it's the medical side that I think has untapped potential that a lot of folks aren't even thinking about. I mean, we're going to see a significant and widespread adoption of medical marijuana, in my opinion, to treat a wide array of medical illnesses, which you know, pharmaceutical companies have been profiting from for decades with mixed results, depending on, on what, where you look. Yeah. And so that's another thing about it is that a lot of people don't realize that you can't just do research on marijuana. Right. And, and the stuff of, of, of legends where it's like that one place in Mississippi or Tennessee that can only do the research and it's, you know, the the government run lab, but, but that's the big thing is, is being able to do this actual research on the benefits of it. Right. And the cannabinoids and how they interact with each other and the different, you know, ways to do it. Cause you know, smoking it is just, you know, that's the common way. That's the, you know, the, 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 the Hollywood way, but there's mm-hmm. all of the different ways that, that it can be used. Right. Um, and so that is interesting. And I feel like, so 
I, I will have to say is that, so, you know, I remember dare class. I remember going through the, that whole process, you know, the, the dare, uh, you know, I think I still have a dare shirt around somewhere. Um, I know I, my family has been affected by drugs in general. I'm just going to, you know, kind of blanket drugs, whether, you know, uh, alcohol or marijuana or heroin or crack or whatever. Right. Uh, and I think we all know somebody who has been affected and it's been, it's very interesting to me personally to, to see how, the arc of drugs in our society is changing because you see what's happening with maps. You see Tim Ferriss doing, you know, research on, on um, psilocybin and how it can be treated for depression and MDMA using it for post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. Right. And so it's like one of those things where um, all of those have some sort of other kind of um, issue related around it. Like this, what we're talking about, right. The money, just, just, just being able to park the money and having, a W-2 come from a cannabis company, right? And and, be, and so forth. So, um, so yeah, so I, I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, I'm actually more hopeful in the sense of it changes the conversation for the younger people, right? Because there's even more research now coming out. It's like any drug before 25, right? Any drug before 21, like that, it, it can really have lasting effect, right? Whether it be alcohol or, or caffeine, like anything, right? Um, so, so that's, uh, I'm, uh, this is where I, I, it's great to, you know, see that this is a Connecticut company and kind of doing something. It's uh, it's also um, one of those things where, again, the, uh, the, the horror stories of the stick up men, like, and, and what's happening with the, with uh, these uh, businesses, which for some people um, it, it, they, again, they're, they're not in and around it or they, they don't know about it. So they don't think it's going on, but for people who are in it, it's like a real thing. I mean, I have, a, I have a grower friend in, in, in Maine, that, I mean, he has to worry about getting stuck up for a hundred dollars worth, you know, and it's just like that, that's, it's wild. Right. And it's in, in, in people. And unfortunately the, the robbers go to new markets and they go here and there and so forth. Um, but that's again, a, a problem that some people that are coming out of the military are helping to solve. So you wouldn't, <laughs> there, there's always, there's always a problem. Yeah. So. You know, there, there's plenty of room for the people making the picks and the shovels. Um, you know, so transportation, as you're alluding to, <clears throat> you know, really any, anything you can think of that every other industry has access to, um, legal representation, accounting and other finance work, down to, you know, civil engineers to design layouts for buildings and, and structures that comply with both the local zoning regulations, as well as the specific layout codes that are outlined in the regulation. I mean, the industry the sales numbers are impressive and, and it is one of the few that actually went up um, quite substantially during COVID. Um, we'll see if, you know, once the stimulus running, money runs out, if, if those sales numbers still hold. Um, but it, the, the sales growth is impressive, but the, the industry is, it's not really even gotten started yet. I mean, there's still so much critical infrastructure that needs to be developed. Uh, and so if, you know, any of your listeners have, you know, an idea or a concept or are curious if, you know, their service or their product would translate to the cannabis industry or if operators would benefit from hearing from them, um, you know, feel free to, to get in touch. We're at greencheckverified.com. Um, we are in the business of connecting not just financial service providers, but service providers in general with these cannabis businesses to help them grow. And, uh, and that's great because I assume that that was also not necessarily an intended product or feature of, of the platform when, when, uh, first starting out, right. You're just thinking about your, oh, I'm only solving this problem, but actually you're like, wow, we can solve X, Y, and Z, right. Uh, all these other problems around it. Once we have this, this base of, of, a, of a platform. So, um, cool. So, you know, talking about this last year and kind of how, how things have, um, how things have changed, 
what uh, what has changed about your business? What has the trajectory of your business changed, uh, or have you had to make kind of uh, big uh, uh, big modifications to how you operate? Um, well, we we've stumbled into um, a pretty substantial growth spurt in the last uh, call it six months. Certainly, the the tail end of twenty twenty. Um, you know, a lot of so so no cannabis businesses were eligible for any SBA funding. And a few states carved out some of their stimulus or you know, recovery plans to uh, hopefully help the cannabis industry. But by and large, these businesses were left on their own to fend for themselves. So you know, we, we feel that stepping up at, a, at the time, we offer our services for free to the cannabis industry. And so um, we, we had some good growth that brought with it you know, partnerships that allow us to scale into new markets. The, the biggest change that we've made is one we were just talking about of, of opening up that access. So our, our core competency is in connecting to the, the business systems that are being used by the dispensary or the grower and extracting that data and presenting it to the financial institutions so that they can pass judgment and openly bank that customer. Um, the reality is that model applies to more than just banking. It applies to payments, insurance, non-banking alternative capital, even you know HR and payroll services. They all want to be able to work with the cannabis industry, but they need assurances of their own that they're dealing with compliant, legitimate businesses. So our platform opens up that access. But the, the surprising part was that wasn't our idea. That was our cannabis customers coming to us saying, hey, you helped me get a bank. I need a, you know, a new directors and officers coverage. I need you know, to figure out how to pay my employees through direct deposit so I don't have to carry cash. I need these other services. What can you guys do to help? So that's been super exciting you know, for the market to, to pull rather than us trying to push a solution. Uh, and, and by and large, the, the services ecosystem is responding as well. There are a number of different players that want to tap into this emerging market, but just you know, need a little bit of guidance. I could only imagine what DNO insurance is for a cannabis company. <laughs> that's gotta be, that's gotta be a little wild. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so I guess, you know, you also mentioned the, the uptick in cannabis use and, you know, I, I think the alcohol, maybe, maybe packed shorts would probably uh, say similar, uh, similar numbers. Um, what are just kind of not necessarily cannabis related, but what are some trends that you think are, are going to stick around or that you adopted because of, uh, of COVID and, uh, um, you know, what, what do you think is not going to kind of stick around? So in terms of the cannabis industry, um, you know, even throughout the lockdown, we've seen a number of states enact new programs. The, the 2020 election saw five new states come online and uh, Arizona was the fastest state ever to go from referendum to fully functional legal program. It happened in about three and a half months. The aspect that I think is going to stick around is that all of those new programs included some component around social equity, around some, um, not reparation, but acknowledgement of a failed war on drugs. And so creating a fast track for uh, licensed applicants who were disproportionately affected by those previous policies. The response that we're seeing from then the services side is that banks and credit unions are working with these social equity applicants because not only do they need banking services, they need sort of general guidance as a whole. A lot of them are first-time entrepreneurs. Maybe they haven't opened a business banking account. They certainly haven't opened a high-risk account. 
So being able to position your community bank to serve a member of the community that was sort of thrown into the deep end, right? With, yeah, we're gonna give you a social equity license, but we're not gonna give you any resources to be successful. A lot of these banks and credit unions are stepping up to fill that void. And I think as we continue to see how this economy evolves, it's going to you know, remain focused at the, that grassroots movement, um, you know, those smaller mom and pop shops with you know, little to no background in running multi-million dollar businesses, but uh, in need of a support system to be successful. Um, what I think is not going to stick around, I think was the second part of your question. Uh, for some reason, multiple companies think it's a good idea and that the market needs weed vending machines. There are about a half dozen businesses trying to build, uh, bring these products to market. Uh, I think it makes sense in a contactless world to you know, remove as much interaction as you can, but with the controlled substance, uh, I don't know if weed vending machines are long for this world. The only way I could even see that is like if it was inside the dispensary, which had still the, the same protocols of, of, of that kind of a thing. Um, and le- it's kind of funny is that some people, uh, you know, uh, the younger kids out there and I dated myself earlier is that I still remember the cigarette vending machines, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, like th- if I saw, if I saw that around right now, I'd be like, whoa, like who, who thought <laughs> that was a good idea to bring back. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, any, any, uh, any, any sort of that. Um, well, well, very good. Yeah. I, I would, um, that's the, the social equity programs. Um, I know there has been a couple other states that have done similar kind of stuff, right? They're going to give access to certain people in certain geographic regions. I know Massachusetts has something like that. Um, but there's a, a, I mean, there's a long way to go to even come close to kind of uh, making it right. Because there's many states that are legal markets that still have people in jail that for like serving long or life sentences for the sale of marijuana, which is it's, it's one of those things that if you really think about it, just baffles your mind. It's like, how, I, I don't understand how that could happen. Right. So, um, so those, those will be interesting. Um, and again, you're right. Like with a, sometimes it happens with these social equity programs is that you, you, you kind of say, here you go, you can get access to it, but then you really don't have access to everything else you need to actually make that a successful right. business. Right. Um, and so, uh, so that's, uh, I think, uh, hopefully that will be good. Um, you know, uh, we'll, we'll be able to find, um, or like learn from, from States that do it. And then, you know, the next state will do it better, right. The next state will do it better until there's, uh, you know, uh, a good program. And again, 15 years later, 20 years later, and you know, there's, uh, it, it's all better because the, you're, you're right. The, the failed drug, uh, war on drugs is, uh, the documentaries are endless at this point. Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, Cool. So, uh, you know, in wrapping up, um, you know, obviously we want to know where, um, you know, we can find uh, green check and, you know, uh, how people can reach out to you, but do you have any kind of words of advice for, uh, you know, the entrepreneur, the uh, person getting into this business, um, or even, you know, starting their own business at this point? Yeah. I mean, at a high level, um, you know, one of the most powerful lessons for me over the last couple of years has been, you know, find your niche, right. Find, your audience, who you're catering to, um, and then just go all in on that. You know, if you're uh, an entrepreneur who is starting a business to solve a specific problem for a specific type of customer, you know, don't go wide, go deep. There's enough room for best of breed solutions. You don't have to be a one size fits all. Um, and you know, that, that translates to the cannabis industry as well. I mean, this is a, a captive market. Sure. But if you're a cannabis entrepreneur, you know, 
focus on something, right? Be it a, a specific customer segment or product type or experience even. Um, you know, whatever it is, just find your thing and go all in on it. Very good. I like that. I like that advice. Um, well, Mike, I uh, really appreciate this and uh, we look forward to kind of seeing how, uh, how you get to uh, transform the industry from here. So thank you very much, much for joining us. Pleasure speaking with you. When starting a podcast, one step in the journey is landing a sponsorship. And in 2021, CT Startup is thankful to have two sponsors. One of those sponsors is Connecticut Innovations, or some people know it, CI, an organization that has been a key player in turning Connecticut into a hub for innovation. In 2020, Bloomberg ranked Connecticut as the fourth most innovative economy in the country. And CI is one of those organizations here in Connecticut that can take credit for that ranking. CI is Connecticut's strategic venture capital arm and is the leading source of financing and ongoing support for innovative, growing companies. By offering equity investments, strategic guidance, and introductions to valuable partners, they are enabling promising businesses to thrive. For more information on how Connecticut Innovations can work with your company, please visit their website, www.ctinnovations.com. Thank you for listening to CT Startup. More Connecticut startup news, information, and events can be found at ctstartup.com. The weekly episodes of this podcast can be downloaded from iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and ctstartup.com. See you next week.